Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Today we're talking with law experts about the pending cases from the Supreme Court as its term is about to conclude for another year. We have two guests with us in the studio. Steve Sanders is a professor of law at IU's Maurer School of Law and, the Val Nolan, and a Val Nolan faculty fellow. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fargo is director of the Center for International Media Law and Policy Studies and associate professor in the Media School at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, you can uh, phone us on the show at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, Steve, Tony, good to have both of you back. Tony, you were just here not too long ago. Steve's been on a number of times. So uh, this is kind of an annual show for us to talk about the Supreme Court because it's such an important part of um, everyday life, and it seems to be becoming more of an important part. This week already, yesterday, there were three decisions that I thought maybe we would we would run through. Um, Steve, there's case out of Alabama that seemed to surprise a lot of observers of the court. Can you explain that one? Yeah. Um, the Voting Rights Act has a federal, vo- federal law called the Voting Rights Act has existed since the mid-1960s and been reauthorized by Congress a number of times and has always been considered to be um, kind of a centerpiece of our democracy. It was originally passed because of concerns of the disenfranchisement of black voters. The current Supreme Court or recent Supreme Courts have, through various cases, really narrowed the interpretation of that law, have um, diminished the power of that law uh, in the way it can be used to prevent states from pulling various kinds of shenanigans that interfere with voting rights. So this case was a bit of a surprise. Alabama drew a legislative map, the legislature drew a a map that um, uh, was alleged to have diminished black voting power by, I, I think Alabama has seven uh, congressional districts, and they had put up, uh, uh, there was only one majority black district. And the allegation was that was insufficient, as it was a way of concentrating black voters in one district and then diluting their power around the rest of the state. The Supreme Court agreed that that was a legitimate claim under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, it was a decision that had. Uh, three of the uh, the court's liberal justices joined by uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Ro- Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion. And, and I think it was a surprise because it, it seemed to be the rare case where the Supreme Court was perceived to be enforcing the voting, allowing the Voting Rights Act to be used um, in its full power to uh, uh, to, to avoid diminishing uh, 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 minority voting rights. Um, the issue on the court between the majority and the dissent tended to center on whether the requirements of the Voting Rights Act even get into things like race balancing across legislative districts. Um, uh, 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 Justice Clarence Thomas's dissent emphasized that he thought the Voting Rights Act is primarily about voting methods and access to the ballot and so forth. He said, you know, it's a fraught thing anytime you get into, well, you know, should we have proportional representation? Should the number of black majority uh, legislative districts or congressional districts mirror the state's population? And that's uh, a question you can never really answer in a satisfactory way because of the way population is distributed and so forth. But the bottom line is that this was a decision that um, uh, was, was friendly to the Voting Rights Act and friendly to plaintiffs. And so it may a little bit check the perception that this is a court that is determined to really gut various provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Okay. Tony, there was a, a case decided yesterday that, you know, on the surface of it, it's 
kind of humorous in a way. I mean, it's the Jack Daniels versus the Bad Spaniels case is the way it's sort of been labeled. Give us an explanation of what happened there. Yeah, there was a um, company called VIP Products that came out with a, uh, a doggy chew toy, uh, one of those annoying squeaky things that any dog owner uh, has a love-hate relationship with. And uh, they decided to uh, come out with a line of these that it resembled uh, liquor bottles uh, with humorous takes on the names of those liquors on, on the label. They did one for Jack Daniels where the chew toy resembles a Jack Daniels Daniel's bottle, which is a very distinctive uh, uh, trade dress, and uh, they called it Bad Spaniels instead of Jack Daniels, and uh, they made some references, whereas Jack Daniels refers to old number seven as its formula, they referred to old number two and talked about, uh, you know, dogs pooping on carpets, basically, uh, as, and part of the text, but their labeling also uh, basically copied Jack Daniels uh, script and uh, again, kind of resembled their own uh, trade dress and trademark. The uh, Jack Daniels folks were not amused, so they sued for trademark infringement. Uh, under uh, the Lanham Act, which uh, basically governs uh, trademark law, prior to about 25, 30 years ago, uh, Jack Daniels would have had to basically provide some sort of proof that this product caused uh, confusion among consumers about who actually produced the product. But after a Supreme Court decision that threw out a, a case against uh, uh, the owner of a, uh, a sex toy shop in Kentucky who called his store Victor's Secret and upset Victoria, uh, when the court decided in favor of Victor in that case, Congress rewrote the law to just say to basically change it to say that there only had to be shown a likelihood that there would be confusion. In this particular decision, the court ruled in favor of Jack Daniels, and basically had two main grounds for their decision. One was that VIP Products had trademarked its toy, and had essentially trademarked Jack Daniels' trademark. In other words, uh, because they had copied it, and that was, of course, not acceptable. The second ground is the one that bothers me a little bit because they also said um, they narrowed to some extent the fair use exception under trademark law for parodies. In other words, VIP products basically said, well, we were trying to have a little fun at Jack Daniels' expense. That's covered under fair use. Uh, we are allowed to basically make a parody of them even if we are profiting from it. And there have been previous Supreme Court decisions that have, have gone along with that in copyright cases. Uh, in this case, though, the court said that a parody, claiming that something is a parody is not a blanket uh, immunity from uh, basically liability in this case, that it wasn't ex just the fact that it was a parody, but also that it was commercial parody that also used someone else's trademark. And that narrows to some extent a, a, an important defense for people who want to comment on products and, and services. So I'm a little concerned about that part of the decision. Otherwise, I think they followed the law there pretty closely. Um, I do wish sometimes that maybe companies like Jack Daniels would have a sense of humor about these things and laugh it off. But uh, be that as it may, the, the court went with the law pretty much on that one. One of the uh, uh, explanations of this case that I read, I, I like this paragraph, it says, though, the Jack Daniels case involved serious concerns about First Amendment protections, which is what you're saying. In trademark disputes, it provided a respite from some of the politically fraught cases the court heard this term. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot more fun than voting rights and other things. <laughs> right. And, Steve, there was a case that had uh, uh, some semi-local uh, ramifications out of Indianapolis. What was yeah, that one this about? was the Health and Hospitals Corporation case. So as a little background, um, there's a federal statute that was passed in the wake of the civil rights, uh, in the wake of the Civil War. It was known at the time as the Ku Klux Klan Act. Today, lawyers call it Section 1983, which is where it is in the federal code. Section 1983 empowers citizens to come into court and sue for money damages when their constitutional rights are violated. 1983 is undeniably an important 
uh, way that people protect their rights against police officers or school principals or other people who might violate their rights and cause them money damages. Section 1983, though, by its text, isn't limited to the Constitution. It says you can also sue for violation of your rights under the laws of the United States. Okay, the Health and Hospitals Corporation in Indianapolis is a government entity that runs nursing homes. It receives Medicaid funding from the federal government. And part of the statute, the federal law that provides this funding says that the nursing homes that receive this funding may not do certain things to the people who live there. The people who live in those nursing homes have certain rights not to have um, you know, a, a chemical restraint used in unreasonable ways and not to be moved around for not good reasons and so forth. The Supreme Court has long struggled with that part of 1983 that says rights under law. I think it's reluctant to read too much into what Congress does, figuring that if Congress wants to give these people a right to sue, it can do so explicitly rather than asking us to infer that. Well. Be that as it may, uh, in another sort of surprising decision from a court that hasn't been necessarily friendly to access to the courts by plaintiffs, um, the court said, yes, that uh, the the family of the person in uh, the nursing home operated by Health and Hospitals Corporation that had suffered some injuries and some uh, some wrongs could sue. Um, the courts. The the theory was when Congress gives money to uh, a nursing home through the Medicaid program, it's like a contract, and the only two relevant parties are the federal government and the local government. The person living in the nursing home sort of is out of the picture. They're what's called a third party beneficiary. Instead, the court said the proper way to think of this is through. It's like personal injury law. It's like tort law. The federal law says that when we give money to this government entity, the government entity can't mistreat you in various ways, and that does give you express rights that you can vindicate under the law. So it's a bit of a technical issue. It's a little bit in the weeds. It's a little legally nerdy. But but again, it, it, was, it counts, I think, as a somewhat surprising decision from this court because the general thrust of the Supreme Court over the past 20 or 30 years under Section 1983, this federal law that allows you to come and seek money damages when your rights are violated, has been to cut back access to the courts and to expand the theories on which government and government agents have immunity from lawsuits. So this is undeniably a victory for the family of the person in the nursing home. The the significance may be limited by the fact that the vast majority of nursing homes in this country are not they receive Medicaid funding, but they're not operated by the government. They're operated by private corporations. This decision only applies to the relatively small fraction of nursing homes that are operated by government entities. But the sort of you know headline is Supreme Court um, you know maintains access to courts for people injured by wrongdoings of government. All right. Well, if you have a question or a comment about what the uh, Supreme Court has done already, you can certainly uh, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. Or you can send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can send questions to uh, us uh, on Twitter at Noon Edition. And you can also send questions or comments about what the Supreme Court may do. And that's where we're going to go Next, there are a lot of cases uh, during this term that are still to be decided, and two or three of them have to do with higher education, and and I want to go that direction first. Let's talk first about the uh, student debt relief program, Biden's case. This is uh, Biden versus Nebraska, I believe is what it's called case in which the court will decide whether the Biden administration can proceed with its student debt relief program. What signals are you getting? What what can we expect from that? Tony, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Um, I think what this case will end up coming down to is not so much what President Biden was trying to do, but how he did it. And I think uh, the Supreme Court will be kind of skeptical of the idea that a president, uh, through uh, executive order basically can uh, negate 
student loans that are going to cost the people who made the loans, you know, millions and millions of dollars, potentially. Um, I think they would probably prefer that something like that would go through Congress. And I think there's a pretty good chance that that's how they will rule, I think, is that, you know, whatever we think of the merits of forgiving student loans, the president can't just do that, you know, Mm -hmm. without the consent of Congress. Uh, Again, whatever you believe the merits are of that, I think the court will probably take a much more procedural uh, approach to this one. Mm -hmm. Steve? Yeah, Yeah, I think the larger story behind this case is something we're seeing increasing with increasing frequently, and that is policing the boundaries of power, the separation of powers between Congress and the executive branch. When I teach constitutional law, I, I try to impress on my students so much of what we imagine is the power of the presidency really amounts to the president simply implementing powers Congress has given, chosen to give the president. You know, Trump wakes up one day and decides to put tariffs on China. Oh, the president seems to have massive power. No, it's because Congress said the president under certain circumstances can implement tariffs if he or she decides to. So in this case, Congress said that um, during situations of national emergency, and the background here is COVID, um, the 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 uh, Department of Education can waive or modify basically any provision of the student loan program. Well, the Biden administration decide, decided that waive or modify includes forgiving something like $400 billion, I think, in student loan debt for 43 million people. Um, you know, so this part of this comes down to what do words mean? Is that, you know, yeah, that is modifying something. You're modifying a lot of obligations. You're waiving a lot of obligations. Is that what Congress meant when it wrote that language? Because other parts of the law refer to canceling debt. And, you know, if Congress decided to use the word cancel in one place, can the president basically cancel loans by pointing to language about waiver or modification? So this is one of those other situations where lawyers get wrapped up in, but, but the words mean something. And, 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 and this court has been very nervous about allowing presidents to exercise authority based on at best ambiguous or arguable authority that it's been given by Congress. The the court is not saying that Congress couldn't decide to forgive this debt, but that the federal government couldn't do it, but that Congress, if it's going to want that outcome, needs to say so explicitly. The Congress and the executive branch can't just seize on malleable, ambiguous language that may not have, and, 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 and kind of really give it its this maximalist interpretation and outcome. Mm-hmm. It seemed like when when they heard that case, it seemed, I, and you can stop me about this, but it, everybody was saying while well, they heard it, they seemed very skeptical. It seemed like this is not going to be upheld. That they're gonna they're gonna overrule the president on this. Can you take those kind of signs from the arguments that people are making during when they're when they're you know, hearing the case as opposed to when they're actually going to release their ruling? People always try to read the tea leaves. I mean, after every Supreme Court argument, that's what the New York Times and SCOTUS blog and other people do. They try to interpret the questions and the body language and the amount of time each side got, uh, you know, the amount of time that was spent questioning them. I, I, I think here... Uh, It's not just what happened at argument, but again, there have been a series of cases of the Biden administration's mandate that employers um, enforce COVID vaccinations last year is another example that got struck. And there's a clear pattern here of of this particular Supreme Court really policing the boundaries of executive authority very closely when it believes the executive is trying to grab, you know, Congress gives the executive an inch and the executive wants to take a mile. That's kind of what we're talking about in these cases here. And it's a court that says, you know, if if the federal government is going to do something that has this kind of political and economic impact, Congress has to speak clearly about it. We can't just let the executive um, run as much as they can based on contestable language in a statute. Okay. Tony, anything to add? Well, I would just add that uh, in, in regard to trying to read the tea leaves, uh, what some people sometimes miss is that the court, the justice will sometimes uh, play devil's advocate when they're asking their questions. It appears that they are basically saying, 
I have a really you know, hard time believing that this this argument that may not actually be their position. That may be basically uh, them trying to get a better argument out of the attorney for whatever side mm-hmm. they happen to be talking to. So, again, I used to live in Vegas, and you know, one thing they always taught us is never bet on what the Supreme Court is going to do. So, <laughs> or you know, bet at all actually, but particularly that. Steve, that's just kind of uh, the role of a lawyer, right? Play the devil's advocate, right? You... I, we we train our students to be able to make arguments <laughs> on both sides, depending on who their client is. Right. Okay. So uh, affirmative action. It's another key area in this court. There are a couple of different cases that have to do with um, race-conscious admissions policies at Harvard and at the University of North Carolina. Um do these violate the Constitution or federal civil rights law? What are, what, what are these cases about and what are we going to hear with that? So um, the Supreme Court, even since the 1990s, when it had uh, you know, a different, somewhat different collection of justices, has been quite hostile toward affirmative action, by that meaning allowing government entities to uh, use race as part of their decision making. In 2003, so 20 years ago, the Supreme Court surprised some people by saying that um, universities in considering admissions applicants could take race into account. They didn't need to be blind to the applicant's race. They could use it as a plus factor. Um, it, it, it's part As long as they saw it as part of the whole person, part of the total package, as long as they didn't give, you know, kind of just arbitrarily five extra points for being black or Latino or Asian or something like that. Um, but but they didn't have to be blind to it. They, they could consider it as part of a holistic admissions process. Um, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's opinion for, in that decision was actually, I think, very deferential to the educational judgment of colleges and universities, as well as to the establishment. She cited briefs that had been submitted by corporate CEOs and retired military officers that racial and ethnic diversity in higher education is important because we're preparing people to work and operate in a racially and ethnically diverse society and workplace. Well, ever since Grutter, um, conservative activists have been on the attack saying the decision gave too much deference to to professors and educational administrators and and saying in practice the way universities consider race makes it like a quota. Statistics show that they're basically still using quotas. My take on these two cases, one involves the University of North Carolina, one involves Harvard. Harvard is in there because although it's private, the same standards apply to private universities under under federal statutory law. Um, My sense is if North Carolina and Harvard are abusing the process, if they're really engaging in quotas or race balancing, then, you know, go after those universities specifically for misapplying what the Supreme Court has said is allowable. But the goal here of conservative activists is to take down the Grutter decision altogether, to say that essentially, if I'm sitting on an admissions committee in the law school, I can't know the student's race. That 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 can play no factor in my decision making. Mm-hmm. So that so that that would have a really um, significant impact, it seems to me, on enrollment in universities. Tony, am I am I wrong there? No, you're not wrong at all. I don't think. Um, one of the things I think that that is, you know, irritating to some extent about the fact that we keep going back and looking at affirmative action over and over again is that I think a lot of people have kind of lost sight about why affirmative action exists to begin with, which is partly because we have had in this country a long, long history of people having unequal opportunities for education. Education is a gateway to better opportunities. And I think there are people who would like to think that we have solved that problem and affirmative action is no longer necessary and I would beg to differ on that. Uh, I also think and, and Steve pointed you know, to this as well that, that the, the idea that, that people should be exposed to a diversity of viewpoints and a diversity of backgrounds is a key component of education. Uh, it should be a key, key component of education but in order to make that work you have to at least take some consideration out of the fact that you are trying to build a diverse student body, even if you don't use quotas, which, again, the Supreme Court has already said don't do that. Um, it should be something that you could at least consider as a factor 
I would think, at least from a public policy standpoint. I would want that to be considered as a factor. But I think Steve is right. I think what the court may do in this case is just simply say, Harvard and North Carolina, you're doing it wrong without necessarily saying you can't do it. Uh, that would be you know, maybe the ideal I think it would here. be, too, although um, you know, I was just reading this morning in a higher ed newsletter, it doesn't seem to be what most people in higher education are preparing for. Yeah. Uh, the outcome, but but Tony's insight is is exactly right. I mean, when in in this Grutter versus Bollinger decision, which involved the University of Michigan law school, was litigated while I was in law school twenty years ago, uh, the court said that that the reason it is acceptable to take some account of race and ethnicity is because we are trying to use, colleges and law schools are trying to create and medical schools are trying to create environments that are intellectually diverse. It, it's not kind of just representation or racial preferences. It is trying to assemble a group of students um, with the understanding that research demonstrates that learning is more effective in a racially and ethnically diverse, in, in, in a learning environment that is diverse on all sorts of different planes, including race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So, Tony, you said something before. I've lost your, your words exactly, but something like uh, the affirmative action situation isn't needed. That Some people would argue it's just not needed anymore. Do you think that's a real reason people are arguing against this, or are there other things at stake? I'm going to be diplomatic here and say, no, I don't think that's the real reason, but I'm not going to necessarily expand. Fair that. enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. And, and it varies, too. Depending on – there's lots of polling on this. There yeah. has been for decades now. And it, it varies on how you ask the question. If you say, do you believe that racial and ethnic minorities should get a preference in admissions, then fairly strong majorities of Americans say no. Do you, do you, when, when you ask, you know, is uh, diversity important to our society and should colleges be able to uh, take, you know, diversity into account in building their student bodies. Majorities of Americans say yes. Mm-hmm. So different people, I, I think the word affirmative action means different things to different people. I want to give our numbers again, uh, 812-855-0811 if you have questions about the Supreme Court. Toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send questions there. Uh, we're talking with Steve Sanders from the Maurer School of Law and Tony Fargo from the IU Media School, uh, who teaches uh, – well, he's involved in various areas of uh, media law and the law uh, also. So both of them can talk about your, uh, your questions and try to help us sort through a lot of these, a lot of these issues. The next one I want to go to – has to do, and Tony, I'm going to start with you on this one. This is the 303 creative mm-hmm. case. Uh, it's a case in which a court will decide whether applying uh, public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. That's a very quick uh, um, explanation of it. What's this all about? Whoa, well, um complicated issue. A uh, web designer was asked to uh, develop, uh, to create a website, uh, to design a website for a couple's wedding, the couple having to be a same-sex couple, and uh, the web designer uh, declined uh, because uh, it would violate, I believe it was her, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Her uh, religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. I just realized I had (laughs) forgotten to check what who uh, this person was. But anyway, uh, she basically argued that this would violate her, her religious beliefs if she were to do this because she did, uh, her religion did not support same-sex marriage. Um, under Colorado law, and this happened in Colorado, um, that was essentially illegal uh, for her to do that uh, or open it up her, her at least to liability because of anti-discrimination laws uh, in that particular state. The question before the court is is interesting because she is in, involved in a creative enterprise, which you could argue goes more to the core of what the First Amendment protects than if she were an accountant, for example. Um, however, the court has in the past pointed out that the first the free speech clause of the First Amendment is not a license to break the law. And uh, one case that immediately came to mind when I was reading uh, the background on this and was cited in the uh, the lower court decision was a case involving the Pittsburgh Press about 50 years ago. Uh, 
they were uh, running advertisements in the classified ad section for uh, uh, for the help wanted section, and they were still delineating them by help wanted female, help wanted male, uh, despite a, a law that said that you could not do that, that that was discriminatory. Uh, the Pittsburgh Press, when it was uh, punished by uh, an anti, uh, basically by the uh, city of Pittsburgh for doing that, uh, argued essentially that this violates the First Amendment, and the Supreme Court said no. Um, you don't have a First Amendment right to, discrim- to basically continue to carry discriminatory material. However, a complicating factor there is that this was three years before the Supreme Court had ruled that commercial speech, namely advertising, was protected by the First Amendment. So you could argue, you know, this case is not as relevant as it sounds. But the problem for the court, and this is going to be a very interesting decision to watch, is how do they basically parse out all these different issues? The court in recent years has been very deferential to religious rights. That certainly is going to be a factor in this particular case. One could argue they've been deferential to a specific type of religious rights or a particular interpretation of Christianity, but um, I'll let other people you know, figure that one out. But, but that's going to be one factor, and this is also going to be basically, since she's a web designer and that's a creative enterprise, does that up the ante in, in terms of free speech versus does the state of Colorado have a right to say businesses cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation? Uh, and Obviously, there's a part of you know of us. I think that there's a knee-jerk reaction. I think in many of us to say, "Wait a minute, are you, are you saying this person runs a business and the state can tell her who she, who she can you know work with and who not?" Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically, because we've already kind of established that the state can do that with racial discrimination issues going all the way back to the 50s and 60s. Uh, so for a lot of people, this will be different because it involves uh, same-sex marriage rights as opposed to, you know, to racial issues, but it's still basically the same principle. However, if she had simply told these these folks who wanted her to design a website, if she just looked at her schedule and go, gosh, darn it, I'm really, really busy the next six <laughs> months, I can't do it, we wouldn't be here now. So obviously she can turn down business if she wants, but can she turn down business for this reason. Mm-hmm. And she went out of her way to make it clear that that was the reason she was doing this. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm talking more than I should largely to avoid telling you how I think the case will turn out because I have no idea. Yeah. Usually the you know usually the application of non-discrimination law is is straightforward. I can't refuse to if I run a business that's generally open to the public. I can't re- refuse to serve people on the basis of their race or their gender or in about half the states, including Colorado, their sexual orientation. Conceptually, what's interesting she she is saying, but the Constitution trumps that kind of law, and the Constitution protects my free speech. And when the government tells me I must design a website for gay people, it is that the, the term of art is it is compelling my speech. It is forcing me to articulate a message that I disagree with politically, ideologically, religiously. That is that same-sex marriage is legitimate or is is uh, is a thing that our society should support. Um, and, and, and But what I have never understood about this argument is, um, you know, she is a business for hire. If I hire somebody to paint my house and they go crazy, you know, doing some sort of Van Gogh work of art on my outside walls, I'm not going to pay that person. That person is a craftsman. They may consider themselves an artist, uh, but there's, I'm paying them and they're doing work for hire and, and they're supposed to be carrying out my orders and my wants. Um, this website designer in her free time and her church life and all sorts of other ways is free to express her views, but she's being hired to do something and she's basically saying my personal expressive First Amendment rights um, can be used to block that law. It's just a, as I said, it's it's a thing involving, you know, kind of whether people who do artistic enterprises, whether they're journalists or painters or f- flower designers or bakers, 
whether they're carrying out their own artistic vision, which I think everybody would agree is protected from government interference by the First Amendment, or whether they're simply a business that's executing something using skill um, that a client has ordered. And I think that's a different situation. And I don't see how somebody saying my personal speech and artistic liberty and freedom are implicated um, by that. You're running a business. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, that one just overlaps into several different areas, too. A lot of these cases do. You know, the Supreme Court, they take up cases that are pretty complex, and they have to really really sift through a lot of the evidence. Uh, we were talking earlier, and I want to bring this up again. Uh, the New York Times put out a uh, sort of a scorecard yesterday about where the public stands on these issues that are still to be decided. And some of them, like the uh, the publics or the private colleges and the public colleges and whether they should be able to use race as a factor in admissions, a vast majority of um, everybody, uh, Democrats, independents, Republicans, said that they should not be able to use race as a factor in admissions. Should public, the public uh, viewpoint color the thoughts of the Supreme Court, or is that sort of opposite of what the Supreme Court should just look at the law and wherever it falls? Is Tony, I'll let you, I'll let you go first. Uh, short answer, no. The public's uh, views on this should not uh, sway the Supreme Court. You want to, I think, to some extent, though, to protect the, you know, the institution of the Supreme Court, you don't necessarily want the court to always be at odds with, with public opinion, particularly in cases where it is a close call whether the law applies here or not. But I think generally what the public sometimes doesn't understand is that the court is not choosing winners and losers based on solely on its own proclivities. They're basically trying to interpret the law. Now, their own proclivities may color how they interpret the law, but they are trying basically to interpret it. So, no, it's not. you don't necessarily want a popular Supreme Court necessarily because that might cause all sorts of other problems because sometimes what's popular is also not what's right, uh, particularly under the law. At the same time, you don't want a court that is so far outside of the mainstream that, um, that people begin to question exactly exactly whether it does actually have any legitimacy anymore. Mm-hmm. Should the should the court have its finger in the wind and, and you know evaluate public opinion in each case? No, clearly clearly not. I agree with Tony. Courts are um, almost by design um, at their best sometimes when they are counter-majoritarian, when they're upholding basic fundamental constitutional principles against invasion by popular majorities or legislatures or so forth. That said, my own view when I teach, I teach a seminar on constitutional interpretation is that over the long run, the Supreme Court needs to not get too far out ahead of or behind of the broad social consensus in this country. I, I think the Supreme Court's uh, gay and lesbian rights decisions from the mid-1990s until 2015, the Obergefell decision, is a wonderful example of that. As the country was evolving on LGBT issues, you saw the court doing that as well. My vision of constitutional interpretation is that it's kind of a dialogue between the society and the court. Again, not not a public opinion poll or a plebiscite on any given case or issue, but in the long run, over the long term, values such as, you know, what is the nature of sexual orientation and how should it affect someone's citizenship rights? What is the role of religion and should religion always trump other sorts of societal interests? Those are the kinds of big long-term issues I'm talking about. And I think that this court is in danger of, um, of becoming unmoored from some of that. Um, if you look at the abortion decision from last year, between Roe versus Wade and the present, there was a very stable consensus in American society about abortion. Um, you know, very few people wanted it banned outright. Relatively few people wanted it available under any circumstances. Most Americans wanted it to be available, but with reasonable restrictions. And that's basically 
over the course of you know three or four decades what the Supreme Court had given us that that characterized the constitutional law, but the Supreme Court overturned that and upset that cart with uh, with with uh, the Dobbs decision last year. Um, final point, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to talk about the Supreme Court applying the law because so many parts of the Constitution are written in broad, open-ended language that I think the authors intended to be kind of interpreted and filled in with experience. And so there's sometimes, you know, when things get to the Supreme Court, it's because almost by definition, there is no clear answer that can be resolved just by looking at a text or precedent. It's a matter of, you know, what does equal protection of the laws mean to us today, for example? I think that in the last Probably since the Trump presidency began, there's been more focus on the Supreme Court than there had been before. There's always been focus on the Supreme Court because what they do is enormously important. It, it seems as if we're we're back in a time where people are talking about, you know, the federal the role of federal government versus the role of state government again. So I, I guess I just want to get both of your take on, you know, is, is that part of, you know, this this issue. Is that part of what we're seeing with the court, with the three Trump appointees? Are are they leaning generally toward just letting the states decide on their own? Has that been have – you, have you seen that? I, I, I don't know that I – so uh, con law professors would call that federalism, you know, the yeah. roles of the federal government versus the states. You know, frankly, that's that's been an issue since, um, you know, some of the, the conservative appointees of Reagan and Bush in the 80s and 90s. You had uh, justices like Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy, both now retired, who were really hawks on that issue. Um, frankly, the, 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 the trends I see here from this current court are much more – hostility toward the executive branch or or at least a a, a determination to, to police very strongly the allocations of power that Congress has given to the executive and not let the president overstep those boundaries. We've already talked about mm-hmm. that issue, um, a, a, as well as uh, what Andy Koppelman, a law professor at Northwestern, calls a sort of attitude of religion always wins when it comes to issues under the First Amendment. I think that's a defining characteristic of this particular court as well. Tony? Yeah, I think I would agree with Steve on that. And I, I think one, uh, going back to the legitimacy problem with the, the current court is that I, when you asked that question, the first thing I thought of was, well, it depends because there don't really seem to, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of consistency from this court. And that's, I think, part of the reason that the court is on the scene is maybe being driven by political wins instead of by strictly following the law. So it's it's a little hard to make that out, but I think Steve is correct that there is a certain hostility to the executive branch doing too much, um, or what the court perceives as being too much. Uh, and again, the Constitution does certainly give more power, particularly in terms of legislating, it gives more power to Congress certainly than the executive. And there is you know some legitimate grounds to to worry about whether the executive is overstepping. But I think that also, some, to some extent, does play into the states' rights argument as well. Is that we want the justices? I think want or a large percentage of the justices want to avoid a situation where states are see their power diluted any more than it already is by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one other case that I wanted to ask about in this, you know, this this realm is uh, Moore versus Harper. It's a complicated case about independent state legislature. But in the New York Times yesterday, the piece that I, I brought out to try to help, my, help me understand what was going on, this is the case where the court may decide whether state legislatures have largely unchecked powers to set rules for federal elections. Is that a case that, that you're watching, Steve, or are you watching that one closely? Oh, oh, I think any uh, con law junkie and, 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 and voting in elections law junkie is so that the, the Constitution has an elections clause that says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives, those are federal offices, shall be prescribed by in, in each state by the legislature thereof. Okay, that seems to say that state law governs, you know, how many polling places they, there are and what the hours are and whether you have mail-in ballots or not, even though it's federal office being elected, the states, you know, run the machinery of elections and sort of set the ground rules. Um, 
in recent years, some people have focused on, but, but we also understand that, yes, okay, legislatures pass state laws, but then sometimes governors have a role in implementing the law, have a certain amount of discretion. Sometimes the state Supreme Court decides that what the legislature did was unconstitutional and overturns it. Um, in recent years, we've seen some, again, largely generally conservative advocates seize on this word legislature. The elections clause says shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And to say that means that these elected legislatures have unchecked power. If they decide to do something, it can't be reviewed by the state's Supreme Court. The governor has no discretion in how the law is implemented. Um, it really, the, 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 and, and, and so the Supreme Court is, is being asked to decide, is that the proper interpretation of this language? Are we cutting out the sort of safety valves and checks that exist on legislatures uh, 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 just exercising sort of unchecked power when it comes to making rules? A lot of this case comes down to how much do you trust elected representatives to do the right thing? versus, you know, do you have confidence in state courts to keep them in line? Do you believe other institutions need to play a role there? Um, and, and like so much in our, in our constitutional politics, this is kind of a red-blue issue because I think generally Democrats and progressives don't trust elected legislators in red states and conservative states like North Carolina, which is where this case uh, emerges from, because they believe that legislators will simply engage in um, self-seeking behavior and will will just nakedly pursue their own partisan interests. And that's why it's a mistake to say um, there are no checks on the power of state legislators to make election laws. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, from just the layman point of view, I, you know, I look at this case and it seems as if you know, we've, we have separation of powers at the federal level, and I've always felt like we had a separation of powers at the state level. This would mm-hmm. seem to just say there is no separation of powers at the state level. The legislature is king, the governor and the state, the Supreme Court and the state um, are second fiddle to the legislature. Am I reading that one right? Well, that seems to be basically what the argument is. It is a, a kind of a, a terrifying idea. <laughs> Uh, because if you – again, I, the court likes to talk about slippery slopes on occasion, and this is about as slippery as they get. Um, at what point do you, do you say, well, not always does the legislature have you know, exclusive power if that's the way the, you know, the constitutional provision or a particular statute is written? Uh, okay, the power here is in the legislature. The assumption, I think, would normally be but – as with everything else, the courts can review that. The governor has some discretion how to do that. Uh, to say basically that in this one particular area, uh, because they only say legislature here, then it's only the legislature that has powers. Uh, again, slightly terrifying when you think about how far that argument could potentially go. Mm-hmm. And, and this also, you know, it, this implicates, you know, bigger issues that we try to train our students in when they're thinking about the law in law classes like the ones Tony and I teach. Okay, the Constitution says legislature. Should we understand that to mean literally only the legislature, or is that language that is essentially saying, you know, the state lawmaking process? What's the historical background? What would the framers have understood the role of various institutions of state government to be at the time they wrote this language? Should we take into account the consequences of uh, uniquely allowing legislatures in this area of lawmaking related to voting to be unchecked by other institutions of government. So it, 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 it brings in issues of linguistics and how a constitution is interpreted um, that, that really transcend the specific issue in this case. Tony used the word terrifying. It sort of terrifies me too as just a, you know, a, a journalist and somebody who tries to make sure there are checks and balances on things. Steve, from your point of view, if they were to take up this case and say, yeah, we think that the state legislatures have unchecked power to deciding how federal governments are run, should we be terrified by that? 
I, I, I think, um, you know, again, it, it, I'm going to be diplomatic and say it depends on how you assess the quality of the people that we elect to lawmaking positions. I think that the, the like the quality of our citizenry, the quality of people that we elect to state legislatures varies quite a bit. There are brilliant, intelligent, principled people, and there are people who don't understand what the Constitution means and are just going to look out for their partisan interests. And this this case is in some ways uh, asking us to decide what kind of faith do we put in legislatures. There, there's one, one other kind of weird legal wrinkle in this case. After this case was heard, the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed itself on the question that originally pushed this case to the court. So there's now a strong argument that the case is moot and the Supreme Court should just dismiss it, that basically uh, it, it shouldn't be decided because uh, North Carolina has changed its law and the, the it, there's no longer a live legal controversy there. So people who worry about the potential damage this theory could do are, are really backing the idea that, oh, this is moot. The Supreme Court can't decide this question anymore. All right. We have two minutes to go. So, Tony, first uh, for you, any other First Amendment cases um, it, that are going to be before this court or any that you any issues that you see in future courts that they're going to be taken out? Yeah, I think next year is going to be a very interesting term in the court uh, because I suspect we're going to be hearing a lot about book banning uh, and whether those uh, bans are illegal, including the one in Indiana. I also think that we probably will be hearing a lot about uh, uh, care for uh, transgender people and whether the state can uh, restrict that. I suspect it will have interlocutory appeals on uh, the various cases against Donald Trump. Uh, that he will probably uh, try to game the system to some extent in those cases by bringing appeals about how those cases were put together. So it should be really interesting next year. As far as the First Amendment, not that much. Uh, We've had two really interesting cases this year that kind of are First Amendment adjacent uh, with the Google and Twitter cases about whether uh, online platforms can be held responsible for, for terrorist acts because terrorists use those platforms in the court has seemed to turn that back. Uh, but I suspect other challenges to Section 230 of the Communications East Act will probably come up. All soon. right. And all those cases, we'll have both of you back. I'm sure we'll talk about them next year, but we're out of time for today. So I, I want to thank Steve Sanders for being here and Tony Fargo for being here, both legal experts, and we're uh, happy to have them try to help us understand the Supreme Court for Uh, Mike Pashkash and Nathan Moore, our producer. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. Hey, Riznowski here. Every week on Porchlight, we take a journey of discovery. It includes music, story, conversation, and the maps are never consulted. Please join us. 6 p.m. Saturdays and 6 p.m. Sundays on WFIU 2. Production support comes from Chris Holly, elder law attorney and Monroe County YMCA.